It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Diva. Hello, I'm Roxy. I'm the editor of Diva. Now, for our historic 300th issue, we wanted to honor Diva's incredible past, but we also wanted to look towards the future. So that's why we put together a Game Changer special where we interviewed three awesome creative visionaries who really are shaking things up and queering the status quo. You're about to listen to some of my conversation with the brilliant Daisy Jones. Daisy is an acclaimed journalist and an author. And through her amazing writing, she is chronicling queer culture and celebrating the rise of sapphic cool. So let's talk about your gorgeous, gorgeous book. What inspired you to write all the things she said, everything I know about modern lesbian and bi culture? I think it was a number of things. I think the main thing was that um, when I was growing up, so in like the noughties and before, I feel like... Um, lesbian and bi culture was considered quite uncool for some reason in the mainstream anyway and I think it wasn't considered that way among sapphics but it was always viewed as this quite uncool part of culture but when I was younger when anyone ever said like gay culture um people would immediately go to like cis gay men which I thought was interesting and then I feel like maybe around 2015 or maybe just before I felt like there was this switch and suddenly lesbian and bi culture was a lot more prominent in the mainstream. Um, it suddenly became this thing that, that seemed a bit cooler to people outside of those spaces. Um, and I was just like very interested in why that had happened and what had prompted that. I wanted to interrogate it and, or like just what lesbian and bi culture, how it evolved in the past like 10 to 15 years and not in a kind of academic way, in a mm. kind of accessible way. And what do you think, I mean, you go into it in great depth in the book, but what do you think if you had to boil it down? Why did Sapphic suddenly become cool around 2015? I don't know. I think it's probably um, a multitude of factors from different... Yeah, I guess I go into it in detail in the book, but a multitude of different things. I think probably social media, the internet becoming much more prevalent, which sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but I think things like Tumblr in early 2010s that sort of made queer culture in general sort of a lot more accessible and cooler for want of a better word for like a new generation because I think that was one side of it um I think just like in general laws progressing and the knock-on effect that had in, in culture and 
people's minds opening up a little bit um it's hard to say like one one particular thing but i think it it was like a knock-on effect well that's what it seemed to be when i was looking back at this particular time and how things are now and how things were then one of my favorite things about reading it as a lesbian as a sapphic I like how you use sapphic as a noun as well. I think that's very enjoyable. One of my favourite things, being a sapphic, reading this book all about sapphic stuff, was there were so many really funny and really, like, nail-on-the-head references to lesbian and bi stereotypes, lesbian and bi pop culture, all of that stuff I thought was so hilarious and so gorgeous. I absolutely loved it. I would love to know what sapphic stereotypes apply to you, Daisy. I'm so many. <laughs> I own my vests. But like I, my mullet's kind of grown out now, but that was was a mullet at some point. I constantly speak up my feelings all the time. <laughs> my bookshelf behind me is shelves and shelves of lesbian books. I own Crocs and Doc Martens. Um, I feel like it's just all of them. <laughs> I'm covered in stick and pokes. Yeah, keep carrying there. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, a lot. Fabulous, I love that. What are some of the what are some of your favourite lesbian books that you've got on your very sapphic bookshelf? This Nima Masculinity by oh, Jack Alfred. Classic, wonderful. Yeah. What else have I got? A lot of Maggie Nelson. Yeah. Oh, Last Night at the Telegraph Club. Oh um, great. Yeah, quite a few, quite a few. <laughs> Fantastic. You're clearly kind of immersed in this culture already. And you describe this book as a love letter of sorts to the modern culture of queer women and non-binary people. What do you love most about being queer? Mm, that's a good question. I think a lot of things, like the, I think there's a playfulness in queer communities that I really gravitate towards. The kind of openness about how different people live their lives. I think I'm obviously massively generalising here, but like, in straight culture, there's like a traje- trajectory that you're supposed to follow. Um, and I like the way in queer culture kind of pushes against that. There's nobody expectations for how you should live your life, like by a certain age, or um, I think there's a lot of freedom to that. I think just community in general, which sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but I think there's a certain intimacy involved in queer communities and like looking after each other, or certainly in the queer communities that I'm involved in. So I think I really like that as well. I've, I suspect strongly that your specialist subject on Mastermind would have been lesbian and bi culture, at least as one of your options. So I feel like you already probably knew quite a lot about this stuff and obviously had your own perspectives. But when you were researching the book and putting it together, what were the discoveries that really surprised you? I think I sort of bowled into it thinking, I know, I know what lesbian culture is, I know what a lesbian is. <laughs> and I kind of left when I finished with a much more open idea about what that means, what the word lesbian means, yeah, I speak about in the book, is like extremely hard to pinpoint. And it's sort of, I think now I view it as like a very umbrella term. Mm-hmm. I think I spoke to asexual lesbians and aromantic lesbians and non-binary lesbians. And I think speaking to different types of lesbians that were different to myself sort of, for me, widened what that word means and... I think that was quite eye-opening. So I hadn't thought about it before about the book, but I think speaking to people a lot sort of opened my mind in that sense. And I realised I didn't know as much as I thought I did and that that, that was a good thing. Yeah, I like your definition of lesbian in the book because it is kind of a little bit 
a little bit more open, a little bit more inclusive, a little bit less rigid and prescriptive than perhaps sometimes we're told is the definition of lesbian. Yeah, definitely. I think we go, oh, I, I grew up thinking lesbian, oh, that's uh, women who have sex with women. Um, but then it's like speaking to people who, you know, really questioning whether, well, is it sexual practice that defines your orientation? Is it romantic orientation? Is it gender? Like there was just a million different things that once you sort of looked into, I realised that none of these things you can definitively say, it's that, it's that, it's that. Yeah, it was eye-opening just having a more open-ended idea of what that word means. And it helped to write the rest of the book as well with that in mind. Another thing that I love about the book is how inclusive you are. Like it's very clearly inclusive of bi people, non-binary people and trans people. Was that important to you? Was that something that you were consciously thinking about while you were putting it together? Um, Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, like anything, it's impossible to write about. It would be impossible to write about Suffolk culture, like if I only wrote about like a a small section of it. So I think it was, you know, for for me to write an uh, accurate representation of what Suffolk culture is today, then it has to be inclusive. Otherwise, it's just missing out like a whole subsection of what it means to be queer which would be a real shame um, and not really what I wanted to do with the books. And how do you feel about, at the moment, there's so many kind of divisions within the LGBTQIA plus community. How do you feel about those divisions? Yeah, I personally think it's quite depressing. Yeah. When I was researching the book, looking back at the things that queer people were fighting against, it was fighting against sort of being boxed in and having other people tell you who you are and having other people tell you how you should live. So it feels a bit sort of like it's, it seems strange to be going against that within the community. That doesn't feel right um, mm. to me, it doesn't feel kind. Definitely, I completely agree with you. So next, Daisy, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about queer representation, which is something that you cover just in wonderful detail in this book. I love, I love, love, love the bit where you talk about the origin, the origin story for all the things she said for the tattoo song. That was really fantastic. And all the other kind of insights and exploration into that. So it's obviously improved a lot over the years. uh, But what do you think still needs to change in the way that our identities are portrayed on screen in music, in pop culture? I think we still probably see a very like cisgender white version or feminine version of what um, a lesbian or bi person looks like also the period dramas it's constantly period drama films which <laughs> is quite funny but also just like why mm. <laughs> there's still this idea of lesbian and bi people lesbian and bi films constantly having to portray trauma i think it'd be nice to see some joys somewhere where it's not just like i don't know caitlin's at crying or <laughs> people walking down the beach being sad. Like, I don't know. I think it's like those two things. For sure. Yeah, the period drama thing's mad, isn't it? Because you're like, because I remember being, feeling like, oh my God, there's so many like sapphic, lesbian, bi Hollywood films. This is amazing. And I was like, hang on. They're all literally set in the old days and very tortured, which I mean, I love that vibe, but that can't be the only vibe that we see. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I, you know, I love a period drama, like, and I love a tortured, I love a tortured song, <laughs> meaning of yearning, but it'd be nice to have a bit of variety as well, um, and but things not to be so sad. It's like, what was, what's the film? I've forgotten it with Chloe Sebegni and Kristen Stewart. It's a very violent one. And, oh, Lizzie, 
Lizzie, Lizzie. yeah. That's like a perfect example of like bleak trauma. But I also thought that film was quite iconic in its own way. So yeah, I love it, but I would like some more. It's almost like they, I think it's maybe more palatable for people because it keeps us at some safe, restrained distance. Whereas if they actually saw kind of the full-bodied life of a modern-day queer person, maybe they find that a little bit confronting. They'd rather we were <laughs> sort yeah. of keeping it secret and yeah, <laughs> feeling like upset. Murdering or, I don't know, <laughs> having some sort of crisis. It's rarer to see sort of queerness as like an incidental character trait, which is weird to me because it's that's what it is like in the real world. <laughs> and would you like to write more books in the future? Yeah, definitely. Hopefully fiction next. I don't I don't think there's any space to write like an, another book about lesbian and bi people unless it's in like the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, maybe fiction next. We'll see. Pod Diva. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey listeners, this is Nick speaking. I'm a junior staff writer here at Diva and for our 300th issue I got to speak to two incredible game changers querying the status quo. The first is a journalist, podcast host and the author of the instant best-selling book The Transgender Issue, An Argument for Justice. She's the one and only Sean Fay. So trans narratives often focus on the hardships of being trans and obviously this is important um, to be spoken about but I wondered what's your favourite thing about being trans? (laughs) My favourite thing about being trans is 
it's an interesting question. I don't get asked it very often because I'm always asked about difficult things. I think it's probably the friends that um, and people it's brought into my life. It means that I have friends and people in my life that I just wouldn't have from the kind of background uh, and circumstances in which I came, like grew up and came from. Yeah, I mean, the community sounds a, a bit cliche, but kind of like, yeah, the friends that have come into my life who, you know, like people who essentially, for whatever reason, live outside the box. There are often people who have like, a different life experience for a variety of reasons, who look at the world a different way, um, because of transness, because of queerness, and can be, you know, like fun, can have dark senses of humour, can manage to find, yeah, like the joy and hilarity and like some of the like strangest circumstances you find yourself in in life from, from living outside of like the dominant norms. Um, so I guess that really. What was the moment you knew you had to write this book and what inspired it? <laughs> well, funnily enough, I didn't have like a light bulb moment. In fact, I was quite resistant to it at first. My agent, Emma Patterson, kind of um, approached me to see if I wanted to be represented by a literary agent. And I was a bit like, mm, I've been asked this before by other agents. No, 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 I'm not really sure. And I'm not sure I've got a book in me. I definitely don't want to write a book on trans stuff, <laughs> which is obviously hilarious now. But I don't know, like, weirdly through some conversations with her, she made a massive effort to kind of, like, meet for a coffee and... I was chatting with her and I'd been writing about, yeah, lots of different aspects of trans issues or attempting to write about them in the media and I found myself frustrated the whole time because there either wasn't enough space or it was hard because people just wanted me to react to, you know, culture war talking points. There was not enough money and time, frankly, given to like reporting and going out finding the stories about the particular challenges that a lot of trans people were facing when I realised that like oh I would be able to like if I did a book I would have the time space money etc to do that and I could probably do it more thoroughly because I would be able to get access to interviewees to know who to call to find people to speak to um, because because I'm part of the trans community then it became like a bit more of an attractive idea although I was a little bit reluctant still about being framed as a trans writer and yeah, gradually, I think I just warmed to the idea. And once I started actually planning out what the book might look like, I was just like, oh, I do really... When I had a full chapter plan, I was like, oh, God, I really wish this book already existed and I didn't have to write it. But, like, it's kind of that thing I remember reading somewhere, like, you should write your books that you wish existed already. I mean, that's kind of what I did, is that I just felt like I had spent so long reading and trying to form these arguments just for my own peace of mind in my early transition and, and beyond really and I am um, and so I just felt like oh well this is an opportunity to do this and then you can step away from it <laughs> which I haven't obviously yet because it's just come out and I'm talking about this stuff all the time but I guess that's what was in my head so that was tw- late 2018 early 2019. For diva readers who haven't who are yet to read your um, incredible book why do you think transphobia is so rampant at the moment? Um, I think there's a combination of reasons, which is why it is, and I think that, you know, it's, it's difficult to, um, the reason I think people are always constantly wondering why it's as bad as it is, particularly in the media and in institutions and British public life, is because there's actually multiple causes and they've all kind of come together. One is, as has done throughout history, scapegoating is that scapegoating of minorities is a repeated tactic of the establishment um, and always has been, often to like, you know, 
create kind of folk devils and enemies within society to distract from wider corruption and exploitation at the high, at the top of society and there can be different targets for that kind of scapegoating and trans people happen to be the one of the moment we've seen that with the murdoch media at the times and the sunday times really taking an editorial line that's hostile against trans people around the same time as like brexit and and a lot of other like you know right-wing resurgence in in around the world and a time after austerity where like you know there's a lot of people who have lost out a lot to a very unfair and unequal system and it's in people's powerful people's interests to keep us divided in order to rule us instead of like maybe challenging you know the elite um so there's that and trans people have the unlucky factor of having become more visible during the 2010s uh, as a minority uh and so therefore because they're relatively new to public visibility uh, and a lot of equal rights, we're talking probably, like, especially legal rights, of like 20 years at most, then, um, yeah, it makes, them, it makes them particularly ripe for this kind of targeting. I also think globally, I think, like, Judith Butler wrote a piece about this in The Guardian last weekend, but I think, like, there is a kind of global anti-gender, and I put that in inverted commas, anti-gender movement, which is largely an anti-trans movement that seems to have a huge anxiety about feminism, LGBT rights, but trans people being one of the weakest groups that make up those two overarching movements, that they become like a unique preoccupation because they undermine traditional gender roles and stability of like patriarchy and capitalism, etc. And then the other other reason I think is that perhaps some of it, some of anti-trans feminism, which is what we see in the UK, or at least yeah, anti-trans discourse that mar- that masks itself as feminism, is I think is a lot of anxieties that come from the fact that like there's been a lot of slowed progress in terms of resources for women, political protections for women, safety for women in their personal and public lives. And a huge rising like online misogyny, for example, and women being abused in the public eye because of like social media dynamics. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the perhaps legitimate anger about that is directed at trans people instead of perhaps looking at like the underlying causes of that. I really liked in the first chapter when you were talking about elder trans people. It really blew me away because I was like, I should have uh, thought about this and known this sooner, but I didn't know that. And that was one of my favourite parts of the book. I feel like it's yeah highlighted issues that we would spend more time thinking about if we weren't so focused on you know Twitter and stuff like the stuff that comes up there. I was wondering what the response um, has been like from elder trans readers of your book. If you've had any feedback at all, I have. I mean, like you know, obviously that's like a big deal because you know people like uh, the writer Ros Caveney who did actually help me fill in some factual gaps or like things because like, she's been around doing like some various forms of activism or campaigning or that on the scene, you know, as an out trans woman since the seventies. And um, some of the research for like, yeah, when I was sort of like finding out what the gay liberation done and the transsexuals and that and where they used to meet, I could just like Facebook message her and be like, Ros, where did you meet? Because my editors asked me like which bit of London this meeting used to happen in in nineteen seventy two and she would know. And and obviously, yeah, I was you know, those people, not just her but others as well, it's like, you know, I'm I'm relatively young, both age-wise and in terms of transition and um and being out as a as a writer in the public sphere and so you kind of like yeah you want to be kind of like credit to people previous generations of activism that my work stands on and kind of credit them and stuff like that and I was 
hopefully careful to do that. And I've been quite pleased with the reaction. I'm glad that pe- those people like the book too. I certainly haven't heard anything negative, but I suppose they would say it to my face. <laughs> but like, I, 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 you know, I've had I've had positive feedback. And um, point about like trans older people, I think like yeah, I think it's an interesting thing because I think you know that was probably one of the interesting. And I did want to include some of it because. I think I was a bit like that when I first started to realise like, oh, this is the experience like if you're going into a care home, you know, and you're and you're worried about like what the care workers and stuff are going to think about you, and like you know you might have like before that like you might have had quite like a liberated life, and then you go into a care home, you might actually be quite terrified of the reactions you're going to get for being trans, and um, it's obviously something we should all think about because we're an ageing population, but also like I think with a lot of trans a lot of the trans visibility and the media and stuff like that obviously just like all the media is youth obsessed and focuses on younger people and focuses on young pretty people and it focuses on um you know trans kids and obviously trans kids is a huge issue but often we do just like older people are invisible whether they're cis or trans and then trans older people is just not something that like you ever really hear about like you say social media and twitter that's also younger people as a rule as well um, I'm a big fan of uh, Call Me Mother, and I know in that you're very passionate about talking to elder members of the queer community. I've wondered if these conversations have impacted the way you view the world? Um, yeah, they have. I mean, the reason that I like it is because the reason I'm a bit of a history nerd, and obviously, like, you learn so much from older LGBTQ people about history, is that history constantly surprises you. Like, you have, you know, you get these, like, broad brushstroke opinions of what things were like at a certain time, but, like, what was good about Call Me Mother, I think, was that um, the individuals that I spoke to, often, like, pretty much every one of them in different ways, had something that surprised me, because it was like, oh, I can't believe that was happening in that time. Oh, I can't believe you did that. Oh, I can't believe that your parents didn't care. And it was like, you know, like, you just went home and told them you were gay or whatever. And they and they didn't care in the 70s or 80s. And so, like, yeah, you just realise the complexity of individuals' lives don't follow these, like, big trends about what it's like for gay people, what it's like for trans people. We do that all the time, you know, in media and stuff like that because we want to say that it's one experience because it's more digestible for people to understand if it's that way. But obviously what's great about talking to older people is, like, they'll correct some of those things or it'll become more nuanced or it'll become more complex. And you just realise it's really, really profound to realise that people have lived outside of society's norms always and some people have been very certain of their identities always actually in times when it really wasn't encouraged at all and so i think now you can find via the internet via social media you can find pockets of life where there is acceptance and celebration of lgbtq plus people but there were times where that would have been really hard to find and people still did lived those lives anyway um and so that i think is what what made me do is, is that there's a kind of that sense of connection with the past constantly makes you kind of revise the present really this might be a bit of a too optimistic question but have you had any positive feedback from unexpected readers so people who were reluctant to advocate for trans rights or even people who who were transphobic themselves <laughs> Well, David Williams posted the book, and I'm not calling him a transphobe, but (laughs) I mean, Little Britain was (laughs) pretty interesting (laughs) in its depiction of, like, someone that could have been potentially considered a trans woman. Yeah, I mean, like, he's quite surprising, right? Like, a mainstream figure who perhaps is, like, Little Britain is now in the kind of era in which we live, like, you know, probably that sketch wouldn't run in the same way well now as it did then it was of a different time 
And I'm a big believer in, like, yeah, people should be able to kind of move on and evolve in their views. But, yeah, I was quite like, oh, okay, <laughs> when you posted about it on Instagram. <laughs> I mean, that's a big one. And I'm grateful to him for reading the book, and I hope I hope it gave him something. But I think I'm just saying that because I uh, I don't want it to sound like I'm just slagging him off. Um, so like, but, yeah, so, and actually where, where he's emblematic is, yeah, quite a lot of, like, you know, men who are, I just want to say middle-aged, is that rude? Yeah, <laughs> like old men, um, straight men often who have um, got in touch and said that, like, yeah, they read it and it maybe helped them in their understanding. They felt like it was something they'd just seen as a very heated debate and it kind of freaked them out. And now that they sort of feel like they get it more, which is great. And they're always surprising because, like, yeah, in my head... <laughs> often they're the people that like are the most silent on this thing and actually it's yeah it's, it's those people you kind of need to get to change their opinions because often they're the ones that because we know what like bigots that are really obsessed with trans people we know what they think and then like obviously like people in the queer community younger people trans people themselves trans allies like everyone those people it's a bit like reaching to the converted so it's the silent majority that you kind of want that was Sean Fay. I really loved speaking with her and I can't recommend the book enough. Up next, I speak to artist and actor Sherelle Skeet. One of her latest roles is Terry Miller in the action-packed series Hannah, which is available to stream on Amazon Prime. So I guess a good place to start is where were you born? So if you didn't know already, I am Birmingham born and bred. London has adopted me. It's my... It's my other home, but yeah, Birmingham 0121, shout out, always. Birmingham is really known for its Rastafarian, black liberation, social activist um, politics, kind of very socialist background. So how that's impacted the arts, specifically within the Caribbean community, specifically within inner city, it's meant that it's really been a gateway. It has been a space where I've, I've seen art save lives not in an airy-fairy way, but in a way where it's literally really been the lifeblood of a community. It's been a place where people who have come from really difficult backgrounds, it's been a way for them to earn money. It's been a way to just be free. It's been a source of vitality. It's been a source of resilience. It's why so many, you know, second city Birmingham but so many artists from Birmingham end up in London and end up doing so well like shout out Lady Leisha, Jacob Banks, you know so many of us, Laura Mavula, that comes from the bedrock of having so much to say from a time where we know that it feels urgent I think. When did you figure out you were queer and what was your coming out story? Okay, so, <laughs> story time. I love the smile. I know this is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like, you know, obviously the most important thing is you coming out to yourself, which can sometimes be like, you know, this is just who I am. Or it can just be more about kind of noticing that you're slightly different because you're just always going to be you. And But then you're like, oh, the way that we socialize means that maybe I can't express this part of me, you know? I would say that I've known that I was queer, I'd say probably when I was maybe like nine or 10. <laughs> and I always had crushes and yeah, with other girls, but didn't necessarily act on it. You know what? I think the more I got into like social activism and really exploring my creativity, 
because it's about being really connecting to yourself and being open and using yourself as a vessel to express that I was like, oh, okay, I think this is where I sit. But again, didn't really speak to anyone. Again, I went to a girl's school. You would have thought that maybe that would be the time that I'd have a girlfriend. No, it wasn't because I think that was, and then my intersection of, of, you know, being black, I didn't really see a lot of black queer people around me. I saw a lot of white queer people. And then I was like, yeah, that ain't me. <laughs> so I think, again, it was about kind of feeling I was I was different and noticing that, like, yeah, I like, I like these girls and I like these boys and I like these people. I don't know how to express it mm. other than to myself, you know? And then I think, yeah, it was actually before my 30th birthday, I kind of sat down and I was like, Sherelle, what are some of the things that you really want to achieve um, for you before you hit 30? Which was beyond like, I'm going to have this amount of money in my bank account. It was more about what are the things that you want to, you know, if I'm saying that I'm brave, you know, especially I'm going to say black trust, you know, I'm trying to encourage these people to, you know, feel safe with, you know, find a home within themselves and to be safe within themselves. You've got to have a serious conversation so by this point i had a girlfriend my my current partner i was about to uh perform at the young vic in a show called fun home which is adapted um but based on um the comic comics of alison bector and about her life i thought i'm playing this wonderful out and proud lesbian woman called joan from the 70s 70s 80s I want to I wanna do her justice. And that's why Dirty Computer is such an important album for me, because I think it was the same week that it dropped. You know, for me, the most important thing was making sure that I'd had a conversation with my mom, my very Christian, very Jamaican mom. <laughs> and yeah, it was a phone call to her. That was the, 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 the biggest kind of experience for me. Before then, I think it was, it, people were like, so Sherelle, are you going to this? I've been to Pride multiple <laughs> times. I've been part of the scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think speaking to my mum was the scariest thing. It's been stages. You know, first of all, it didn't go down very well, which I didn't expect it to be. But where we are now in terms of the growth and the journey that I've seen her go on has been yeah. has been amazing, you know? I'm really, really, really proud of her. And I, I, I understand it because she's an immigrant and also what that means in terms of, you know, she's a black woman. And I think for her, she's like, why would you choose a harder life for yeah. yourself when I've, I've come from this and your granddad has come from this and your grandma has come from this and I'm trying to keep you safe. Why are you trying to add another stripe to you <laughs> that is going to make life harder for you? But where we are now is amazing. She speaks to my partner more than <laughs> you know, I get to speak to her. My partner's like, uh, yeah, I spoke to your mom today. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, lockdown has been, you know, obviously really, really challenging. We've lost so many people mm-hmm. um, because of this virus. But, you know, the blessing has been rest. But the other blessing has been that it's made us hopefully value life a bit more so over that time period we've we've had to kind of hone in as a family and be like okay how do we support each other 
without all the queer stuff, there's the, the difficult stuff of just like parent and child, you kind of evolving, your parents evolving. And when you're kids, you think that your parents just, you know, they're perfect and that they, they know it all when they be healing too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they need healing too. They need therapy. They need all the self-help books. They need, they need, they need the support as well. <laughs> So I, I, I'm an advocate for parents being supported through um, those journeys. Obviously, if you're queer and you're in a in a space where it is not safe for you, that is a very, very different thing. Obviously, yes. you've got to be able to know your um, safety. Um, that's, that's the most important thing. But I think besides that, I think time is really, really important because I've, like I say, from the age of nine or 10 to now I'm in my 30s, yeah, I've had this whole time to go through all the different versions of myself where my mum has had to be like, even though deep down she knew, (laughs) she did know, Um, but it was more about me hearing it come out of my mouth. I think it's taken that time to be like, oh, okay, and that's all right. I'm all right with that. In terms of my coming out, I suppose I'm a bit later to, you know, the teens. I suppose I've had the great benefit of really getting to know me for me. There's this conversation of coming out. I think it's the the most important thing is actually about self-acceptance. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Some some people in your own immediate family don't, aren't ever going to understand. And you've got to be okay with that. I think it's about being okay with you and then everybody else has to catch up. Otherwise, you're going to miss the train, you know. <laughs> it's as simple as that. But ultimately, the hope is, moving forward, that every person can just say, this is who I am, and everyone around them can accept them. That's the hope, that we don't have to necessarily come out. We're inviting people to come in. I love that. And I can't wait to hear more about Black Tris. Can you tell me what you remember of the days and months leading up to starting it? So I've got to take you back. So I was in the show called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Um, I played Rose Granger Weasley and I was in a show that was going to be running for 14 months. So once the show was open, I, I, I think leading up to that, I was in a lot of conversations with people within the community, other black women, black people, where the conversation was kind of leading around like feeling isolated across generations. I would say that I think that I'm in a generation that kind of almost bridges the gap between, I suppose, the older, the elders who have been treading the boards for like 20, 30 years, people like Noma Dumaswini, Sharon D. Clark, Martina Led, um, Doreen Blackstock, Angela Winter. I have to name all of these incredible names. Marianne Jean Baptiste. These are people who have mentored me. Um, mm. People who have taken me in as they're younger and been like, Sherelle, this is what happened to me. Let me give you this piece of advice. And I'm there like re- making notes. And that is such a valuable space to be in. Having reflected on all of this time, I realised that what was needed was to just bring all of these people together. I just was like, everyone is amazing. (laughs) Everyone is amazing. I just want to bring all of these incredible women together in one space. And then I knew that there were younger people who were just starting out, who were just going into drama school or who would message me and be like, Shira, can you give me advice on this? I was like, oh, okay. There's like a network that already exists. So with a friend, we sat down and we organised a dinner in this Caribbean restaurant. There was about 20 of us. And that was 
the first Blackfest event that we had, which was coming up to almost five years, four and a half years ago. And we sat down, we broke bread, we laughed, we cried. We spoke about why we even turned up. And a lot of it came from wanting to feel seen, just being able to hear our stories of the obstacles that we've gone through because of the intersection of being woman and being black, being able to survive and thrive within an industry that wasn't necessarily built for for us. Mm -hmm. How do we navigate it? How have those that have come before us navigated it? How do we learn from the people that have come before us? And how do we make things better for ourselves and for the generation that's going to be coming after us? How do we get our stories heard? So all of these questions started to come out. And then I realized, okay, we need to have another one of these. Then we organized another. So we called these meals a seat at the table inspired by Solange. What's the name of the film with Taraji P. Henson? And it's about those women who basically created the, the the formula for them to get to the moon. Oh, um, Hidden hidden Figures. There we go. Yes. So Hidden Figures. There's a point in the film in Hidden Figures when Taraji's character is invited into that room with all of those white men and they're all kind of confused. and like, oh my God, what's going on? It's the takeover. They hold out a chair for her and she sits down. And in that moment, she's not alone. She's literally got all of those women that were sat at their little typewriters in the following room, really those women are still with her. They're with her, even though she sat at that table on her own, but they've created their own table. So that's the idea. So we would take up space in um, black owned restaurants for the seat at the tables. And these were social. So we had a few of these and then we started to develop them into also celebrating the women that have really laid the foundations who were pioneers. So we've done meals, uh, like for example, in Brixton, and we celebrated and honored Sharon D. Clark, honored Angela Winter. We've also honored our BAFTA winning Reiki Ayala. So we're saying that, listen, we see you before the mainstream recognize you. We see you, we love you, we support you. And there are many spaces where, you know, this is happening. We've just kind of formulated it into a network where there are events and there's a mailing list now we have workshops so then the next thing was to step into putting it into work audrey lord talks about it a lot let our labor be our protest so let let it be in the work that we do so we have spark workshops which are run by black women and femme people who are from the industry whether they're voice coaches movement directors actors themselves and they come into spaces and they basically lead workshops and these are closed spaces for for black women and femme people only and it's about developing these skills which it's amazing to get I suppose one intersection of these people that define both as black and and woman or femme in that space and then you have all the other things in terms of language and background and dialect just your essence you know those so those things solely do not define you what we found was just the idea of trying to take away and heal the idea of tokenism where we feel as though there can be only one of us only one of us can succeed at a time actually know the space for all of us well divas that's it for today's serving of pod diva but be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on our next episode we'll be back in your earbuds every wednesday so stay tuned Mm -hmm.
Pod Diva. Thank you for listening to Pod Diva in association with Diva Magazine, the world's leading brand for LGBTQI plus women and non-binary people. Please listen and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Diva Magazine. You can email us at editorial at divamag.co.uk. Pod Diva. Queers for your ears. Pod Diva. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.